Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church in Riverside, California. For more info about Hope City Church, visit www.hopecityriverside.org. What are some of the foundational things that we need to grab a hold of? Look with me at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus says this. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Because it had a solid foundation. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So we've established, it's like very clear that the most amazing and beautiful home or building on earth is nothing without a solid foundation. One nasty storm or earthquake, and everything crumbles. Jesus says our lives are the same way. It says, what is your life founded on? What is the foundation for your existence? And he says, those who hear these words of mine and do them have built a solid foundation. You are founded on the rock. And those who hear these words of mine and do not do them, when the storm comes, everything will crumble. It's very interesting to me that both people hear the words of God. Some put them into practice and others don't. Since both of them heard the word. And it's very interesting to me also that both experienced storms. Since the rain came, the winds blew and beat on that house, on both houses. So being a Christian is not necessarily just about hearing the word of God, because, uh, you know, you can hear the word of God and not apply it, and it's of no effect. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we never experience storms or trials. It's, what it's saying is that when the storms come, because they are invariably going to come, when they come, what are you founded on? What is your foundation? Because our lives are just like building. Without a solid foundation, when the storm comes, we will crumble. And I've just been, um, I've, just, I've just seen so much, like so many in our day seem to be, I would say, just crumbling and falling away from the simple truths and foundational practices of our faith. So I felt the need to strengthen foundations, to just bring some simple basic instruction on some very simple basic things. It's very interesting to me that Jesus said the strong foundation is built on hearing and doing the word of God. He says, who hears the words of mine and does them is founded on the rock. And so I just want to let you know from the beginning of the series that everything we discuss, not just in this series, but in the life of this church, everything that we discuss will be unapologetically rooted in the scriptures. Absolutely unapologetically rooted in the scriptures. We're going to talk in this series about, about things like worship and our identity and prayer and the church and service and generosity and evangelism, discipleship, and even the scriptures themselves. But what we believe about those things, what we believe about worship and about our identity in Christ and prayer and the church and service and generosity and evangelism and discipleship, and what we believe about even the scriptures themselves must be derived from and rooted in the sacred text. I can't start outside of the word of God with my ideas. 
and then bring them to the topic of prayer or bring that to the topic of worship. We have to start with the word of God and let that be the foundation for us. That's what Jesus said. Hear the words of mine and do them. That's a solid foundation. So in this series and for the lives of this church, we are going to be unapologetically rooted in the scriptures. We're going to constantly come back to the scriptures. We're going to look at the scripture. We're, the teaching is going to be derived from the scriptures. I just want to let you know that from the front. So we're going to look at some of these foundational truths and some essential practices of our faith. But I, I will say this too. As soon as you start talking about foundations, uh, there's no way to do an exhaustive series on that unless we're just going to seriously teach until Jesus returns. Uh, like, We've got like nine or ten weeks maybe in this thing, and I still felt like, okay, maybe I covered half of the things that I would want to cover as foundational. Okay, So what I just wanted to let you know is we're doing some things that I think are very important, but we're not covering everything. We're not covering every dodge. We're not covering every practice. I just think these are some things that I see, and we just need to come back to some simple stuff. It's the stuff that you would go, oh, I knew that, but the deal is like, do we get it? Do we know it? I, I've made the mistake of assuming that I, oh, I just, I've got that. Or assuming that others around me, oh they, oh, they know that. We don't need to talk about that. We don't need to dive into those things. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute. No, we did. We really did. So, that's what we're doing in this series. That's why we're doing a series called Foundations. I, I trust, and I have this expectation, just in my spirit, that this series is going to be something very uh, healthy and foundational for us as a church. I think it will be very, very healthy for us to just begin with a solid foundation. And uh, so I just want to do that. We're, we're going we're gonna to dive into that series now. We're going to talk, like I said, about some of those other things. Uh, in the next couple weeks, we're going to be talking about our identity in Christ. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about the scriptures. We're going to talk about evangelism, all those things. But before we talk about who we are and what we do, we need to start at the right place, and that is with our focus squarely fixed on God. Before we talk about who we are and what we should do, we need to look at God himself and get our eyes fixed on him. And so tonight we are going to start our series with the topic of worship. Tonight we're going to talk about worship. And so let me pray and then we'll jump in. Father God, I just pray that you would anoint this time that is already uh, just dwindling away quickly. Uh, but Lord, you can redeem it all. And I just pray that you would speak to us through your word, um, that we would hear your words and that we would do them so that we would have a strong foundation in our life. And Father God, I just pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word and uh, unlock our feet to walk out your word. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now again, as much as we could do a whole series, uh, an extended series on Foundations. I could do a whole series on worship. Okay? Worship is something that I'm very passionate about. There's going to be a lot that I don't say. This was supposed to be one message. I have a feeling this is going to be two, probably tonight and next week, because there's just so much and just so little time. Okay? Uh, no one's shocked by that, I'm sure. Uh, let me just start by this. When we're talking about worship, okay, I want to let me just quickly, really quickly, tell you what worship is not. Okay? Worship is not singing songs. Worship is not singing songs. Worship is not an acoustic guitar. Now, it can be. You can, you can worship by picking up a guitar and singing songs to God with hearts that are absolutely poured out in adoration to Him. You can also sing songs even about God and not worship. Worship is a posture of the heart. It's not, a, it's not necessarily picking up and singing songs about Jesus. Uh, believe me, 
Okay? I, I've been in those, uh, unfortunately, this is self-confession, I've been in those, I've led worship for many, many years. Okay? And I've had those services where I, we get up, we see some songs, we get down, and I go, did I, did I play songs or did I worship? It's two different things. Okay? So, worship is not just singing songs. Okay? Worship is not performance. It's not entertainment. It's not actually something we come to enjoy. It's something we come to give to God, to do. So everybody here is the worship team. It's not performers and spectators. Everybody here is the worship team. There's only one person we're singing to. Okay, so I want that to get into our bones when we think about worship. When we come here and gather as a church, I want us to think, okay, worship is not even about me. It's not what I'm receiving. It's not whether I'm entertained. It's not actually, I'm sorry, a little side note, it's not actually about your preference in music. It's not about my preference in music. Okay, I'm just going to keep it real. Like, again, for years, it's it's amazing how you'll get little notes in the offering. I'm not here. We haven't gotten that yet. I'm sure we will at some point. But how, like, you know, for years, led worship, Oak Valley Church, did that thing. And it's like funny when you lead worship, you'll get down, like, get little, you know, notes on offering envelopes. Hey, uh, when are you guys going to do some hymns? I love hymns. I love them. We're going to do some here. I love them. Uh, when, are you guys, when are you guys going to turn, turn the volume down? And the same day, we got a note from somebody else. Like, when are you guys going to cut loose, man? When are you guys going to crank it up? Okay? And some people, and here's the problem. It's okay to have a preference. The problem is when you make your preference, oh, God said. The problem is when you go, oh, the, anoint, the really anointed ones are these one, songs, this, this type. The really anointed type is this. It's like, no, just say that's my preference. That's okay. It's okay to have a preference. So worship is not singing songs. Worship is not your preference. It's not a performance. It's not, we're not spectators to worship. We're active participants in worship. And worship is not necessarily even a service. You can gather together, call it a service, call it a worship service, and still not worship. You can go to a conference that's all about Jesus and still never engage in worship. So, listen, worship can include all of those things. But in and of themselves, those things are not worship by themselves. So, what I want to do tonight, uh, and probably I'll have to do the second part next week, is I want to share just what I think are two essential elements of true worship. We talked about what worship is not. I want to give you just two things that I think worship must be. And the first is this. Worship must be God-centered. Worship must be God-centered. I know that seems obvious, but let me just unpack this a little bit and see if we actually respond this way. Let me ask you a question. What and it's a rhetorical question. Don't feel like you have to answer unless you really got something burning and you want to get it out, okay? But what do you think is God's purpose in everything that he does? What, what is he up to? What is God doing? Uh, so I know, yes, he created all things and he's holding all things together by the word of his power. He's saving people and restoring and transforming and providing for people and caring for people. He's doing all of that. But there's something in the bedrock underneath all of that that we need to grab a hold of. There's something, relationship maybe, okay? So there's something in the bedrock underneath all of that. Yes, he's calling us into relationship with him. Even beneath that, what's there? What's he doing? Why is he doing all of those things? Why is he calling us to himself and calling us into relationship and saving and providing for and blessing? And why is he holding all things together by the word of his power? What is he up to? 
What is his grand and ultimate purpose? When we get a hold of that, it will set us free from ourselves. And that's really good news, whether we think it is at the moment or not. So what is God doing? What is he about? What is his ultimate goal and mission, ultimately? Some people, I would say unbelievers and believers alike, might say, well, God's, God's all about trying to get me to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. He, he's kind of just after my begrudging submission and obedience. He just wants me to just like act right. God is all about like my behavior modification. It's just like, just stop doing bad stuff, start doing good stuff, and mean it. And so we live just burdened because like, oh my gosh, like who, because we blow it, right? Like all the time. We screw that up. Many others would say that God, and I would say this, many others would say this, and I would say this is probably a vast majority of people, unbelievers and believers alike. If, if unbelievers have any idea about God, it's probably this. And I would dare say that many believers, this is their concept of God, of God's purpose. God is ultimately about me. It all exists for me. He created us to be the center of his universe. And he lives to care for and provide for us. To prop us up, to revel in our awesomeness, as if he's somehow in awe of our greatness. We, we wouldn't use those words, but I would say that many of us live this way, and actually our actions show that we believe that. That we believe that we are the center of God's universe. Listen, so here's what I want to do, here's what I want to do tonight. The truth will sting us before it sets us free tonight, okay? So it's a little bit of stinging, but, we're, but it's actually good news. It may not feel like good news, but it's actually good news, okay? Many of us have this concept of God that God's universe revolves around me, around mankind, around us. And it sure seems like God is all about us when we read the scriptures. Like we read all these verses about how much he loves us and cares for us and provides for us and leads us and calls us to himself and saves us. And all of that is true. That's like God is crazy about you. He is. He loves you with like an unfailing love. And he wants to bless you. He's for you. Like, that's all true. And we go like, man, that's awesome. What I'm suggesting actually is that even when scripture talks about how God loves us and wants to bless us, there is an underlying motive even in that for him. There's an ultimate purpose in all of that for him. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he's for you. Yes, he provides for you and longs to bless you. But why? What is his ultimate motivation? Turn with me to Psalm chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 23. This is a very famous passage of scripture. <clears throat> it says this. I, oh, I, we will at one point. I've taught on this before. I've taught on the whole psalm here because it's just so beautiful. Um, and we will again at some point. Tonight we're only going to cover three verses. Psalm 23. It's the shepherd's psalm. It says this, The Lord is my shepherd. Like, see, he's mine. Like, he's my, he exists to tend to me. That's what we think. The Lord is my shepherd. He exists to tend to me and care for me. It's beautiful and it's true. The Lord is our shepherd. 
He says, I shall not want. What does that mean? He says, I have everything I need. Other translations say, because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. Or, or you can word it this way. Because the Lord is my shepherd, the deepest needs of my heart and soul are satisfied in him. Verse 2. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. This picture of rest. Picture just being made to lie down in green pastures by the shepherd who's caring for your soul and tending to you and guarding you. He leads me beside still waters. It's a picture of peace. It's the opposite of troubled waters. We have troubled waters. Where it says, he leads me beside still waters. What a beautiful picture of the shepherd. Just a beautiful picture of what he does. For us. It says, he restores my soul. That is, he brings restoration and healing to my life. He says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's his guidance. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And I'm sorry, but as I'm reading this, it sounds like I'm pretty awesome. It sounds like God is really into me. Why is he doing all of this? Verse 4. Sorry, verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For his name's sake. God's motive in all of this shepherding and providing for and giving rest and peace and restoration and guidance to us is not so that we would think we are awesome, but so that we would know he is awesome. And be moved to worship him. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he is the shepherd of our souls. Yes, he tends and cares for us and brings us rest and peace and joy and hope and all of those things. That is who God is, what he does. Why is he doing it? For his name's sake. For his namesake. So that we would look at him and go, you're amazing. And glorify him. Not so that we would say, man, I must be just awesome. It makes me think, okay, I heard the story, I've shared this with you before. I heard a joke about illustrating the difference between like dogs and cats. Okay, And they said like, okay, the dog one day looks at his owner and he says, this guy loves me, feeds me, he pets me, he cares for me cleans up after me. He meets my every need. He must be God. And the cat one day looks at his owner and he says, this guy loves me and he feeds me and he pets me and he cares for me and he cleans up after me and meets my every need. I must be God. <laughs> Guys, we're, so often we're like the cat. We go, God is so, so like, look at what all God's doing when we read all these verses and we begin to think that all of this is because we are just amazing. I'm not here to beat you up tonight or myself, okay? This is actually really good news, and I'll explain why in a bit. God's motivation in all that he does is his name, his glory, and his renown. Why is he holding all things together by the word of his power? So that he would be glorified. Why is he shepherding and caring for us? So that he would be glorified. So that his name would be made great. So that he would be praised and exalted. Everything that he does is for his praise and his glory and his renown. 
This is what we're going to see over and over again in Scripture in a way that God doesn't seem to feel a need to apologize for. This is the stinging truth, but it's actually good news. Sting us to God isn't, his universe doesn't revolve around you. He doesn't exist for you. We exist for him. We exist to bring him glory and praise and honor. This flies in the face of our culture and modern false gospels, which constantly say to you, it's about you. You're awesome. You deserve it. If it doesn't work out how you want it to, you have a right to be angry. Most of the troubles that we have in this world revolve around the fact that our lives are me-centered. Why do I get mad in the fast lane when someone's only doing 70? Why? Don't they know I have somewhere to be? Don't they know they're holding me up and they can just move a lane? Why do I get frustrated in fights with my wife? Why? Because I'm ultimately trying to kind of, doesn't she see that I deserve this or that or what? Like so much, I mean, play it out. And the sins that we walk into, it's it's self-soothing, it's self, it's all kind of, we've organized our lives around ourselves. So the culture says to you, and false gospels that we've heard preached so many times to us, that they sound like truth, constantly say to you, it is actually all about you. God exists for you. Everything that he does is for you and it's about you. And listen, God is good. I don't want to diminish anything of what God is doing for you and in you. But it's not for you. It's not even about you ultimately. He's doing that so that you would live to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians says. Culture says, man, you deserve it. You're you're a beautiful, unique little snowflake. Or as Matt, I heard this pastor, Matt Chandler from Texas, said this. He says, here's what the world says to us. You're a varsity. And if anyone tells you otherwise, it is a slap in your spectacularly unique and beautiful face. So we just hear this all the time. And you deserve. So listen, God is doing all things for his own glory. And the scriptures bear this out repeatedly. Bear with me for just a minute. Isaiah 43. Uh, we don't have this on the, on, the, on the overhead, so don't freak out. I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures that are not on the overhead. Just try to sit with me. The idea is that God is doing all things for his own glory. Okay? And take notes if you want to, and you can study this later. Isaiah 43 tells us that God created us for his glory. It says, we exist to bring glory to God. It's the reason you exist, to bring glory to God. That same chapter says that he blots out our transgressions for his own sake. Isaiah 49 says, God called the nation of Israel for his glory. Psalm 106 says that God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Romans 9 says that God raised up Pharaoh to show his power and to glorify his name. Ezekiel 20 says that God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. It says he spared the Israelites in the wilderness for the glory of his name. I mean, this is over and over in scriptures. I'm just giving you a sampling, like a small sampling of what is everywhere in the scripture. Try to read the scriptures now without seeing God saying, for my name's sake, for my glory, that I may be glorified so that you would glorify me. So you would pray. Try to read the scriptures without seeing it. Pick a chapter. 
2 Samuel 7, it says, God gave Israel victory in the land of Canaan for the glory of his name. In fact, he tells them, I'm not driving these nations out before you because you guys are awesome. He specifically goes out of his way to say, he says, you guys are a stiff-necked and rebellious people. I'm driving them out for my name's sake. 1 Samuel 12 says that God did not cast away his people for the glory of his name. Ezekiel 36, amazing chapter, says that God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. John 7, 18 tells us that Jesus sought the glory of his Father in all that he did. Matthew 5, 16 and 1 Peter 2, 12 tell us to do good works for the glory of his name. Not do good works so people go, you're awesome. They would do good works so that people go, God is awesome. In John 14, Jesus said that he answers prayer so that God will be glorified. In John 12 and 17, Jesus endures his final hours of suffering for the glory of God. He says, and now the time has come, Father, glorify your name. He says, I'm going to the cross so that you will be glorified, Father. Romans chapter 3 says that God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness. That is this. You ever wonder why God, how could God be righteous by just forgiving Old Testament saints before the cross? Like, like David. Right? David blew it, like everybody else, right? And we go like, how could he, like the cross had to happen? Huh? And it says here that it says he gave his son to actually vindicate his glory, the glory of his righteousness, to show that he was righteous and just in passing over the... It's like, it, was like, it was like retroactive. You know what I mean? It's like saying, I was, they were looking, they were trusting in me, and I, and I wrapped their sins up in the, in the cross as well. To vindicate the glory of my name. John chapter 16, verse 14 says that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. Why do you even have the Holy Spirit? So that you can live a life that brings glory to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 tells us to do everything we do for the glory of God. Let's go to work for the glory of God, how you handle your relationships for the glory of God, how you come into church services for the glory of God, how you, whatever. How do you take care of your home for the glory of God? Do everything you do in a way that would glorify. How do you handle suffering? Do that in a way that will glorify God. It says, do everything you do. First Peter chapter 4 says, serve in a way that will glorify God. Second Thessalonians 1 says, Jesus is coming again for the glory of God. And John, I know I'm going long. I'm just kidding, man. I promise you, this is still just a sample. Okay? John 17 says that Jesus' ultimate aim for us is that we would see and enjoy his glory. Habakkuk chapter 2 says that the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the seas. I don't know if you've ever been out on the sea, but there's water everywhere. Everywhere there's sea, there's water. He says that's what the earth is going to be like. Everywhere there's earth, it will be filled with an awareness of the glory of God. Romans 11 says that everything that happens will ultimately resound for the glory of God. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around. Even suffering, even struggle. Ultimately, God's going to wrap it up. It's what we sang tonight. Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good and for your glory. That's what we are singing. That ultimately, everything will resound to the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 1 
verses 3 through 6, tells us that Jesus blesses us, chooses us, loves us, and adopts us as his own according to the purpose of his will. Why? It's to the praise of his glorious grace. Why does he do all that? So that we would praise him and thank him for his grace. And go, God, you are glorious. All this is not, Scripture says, not to us, God, but to your name. Be the glory. I was reading Revelation earlier this week in my just devotion time in the morning, and it's just that spot where it's all these like elders and their crowns. And they, it's like they see the glory of God and they throw their crowns down. They go, no, I want, there's no glory that I want. When I see your glory, everything else pales in comparison. There's no glory I want for my name. You don't hear that. <laughs> He saves us so that we would give glory to him. He saves us so that we would live to make much of him. That's the point. Again, in Revelation 21 and 23, it says, In the new Jerusalem, the glory of God replaces the sun. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that God, for the glory of his own name, is reconciling and reclaiming all things to himself. That means the Bible is not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God. Amen. It's all about God. Okay? I, and I understand. Like, we should be looking for application. Okay? And, I, and I've heard it said many, many, many times. Oh, the Bible's a roadmap for your life. And I know what people are getting at. Because, yes, there are precepts and truths in here that we need to take and we need to live. Okay? I'm the first one to say that. But if we begin to think that this is just given to me to be a roadmap for my life, then I start to think the Bible exists just for me. And what I start to do is, is read the Bible wrong. And I start infusing myself into the stories like I'm the hero. Right? Like, I'm David, and my problem is Goliath. Happens all the time, the problem is, I'm not the hero of the Bible. Jesus is the ultimate hero of the Bible. And so, if I'm looking at a story like David and Goliath, Jesus is the better David, who slays the Goliath of sin and death. And so, if, if Jesus is David and sin and death is Goliath, what does that make us? The cowering Israelites who couldn't do anything against Goliath. So it should move us to worship him, not how do I, how, God exists to just give me the divine, you know, little steps for my life because he exists to prop me up and life is a story about me. It's not. I'm part of the story about God. It's very important. God is all about his own glory and he will share his glory with no other. That's what scripture says over and over again. Now, that's heavy. We don't often think of God this way, do we? Like, even now, many of you may be squirming and uncomfortable with the very thought of a God who is God-centered. After all, isn't self-centeredness and a desire for personal glory a negative quality in a person? And I would say yes. It's an incredibly negative quality for a person. For any one of us to be self-centered and have a desire for our own personal glory would be incredibly negative. But it's not a negative characteristic for God. In fact, it's what it means to be God. It means that there is no one higher or greater for him to glory in. 
I shared a, a Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 on Facebook uh, a while back. The verse, God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. And someone posted, well, he sure thinks very highly of himself. And I understand because it seems, I understand where that comes from. I totally understand it. Because some of us were uncomfortable with the thought tonight, right? So let's not pick on that. I understand. We go, God is God-centered. God is self-centered. Isn't that bad? Right? Well, he, he must think very highly of himself. To which I wanted to reply, he sure does. Who else would you have him think more highly of? You? Me? If God, just by speaking, created universes that you can't even find the end of or wrap your head around, he is definitely worthy of your deepest reverence and all glory. Only wild arrogance would ever suggest otherwise. Or blindness, maybe, to his glory. You see, here's the deal. We're actually, and I'm not speaking about, this is all of us, to some degree or another. We're so self-absorbed and self-centered that we think even God should be centered on us. We think even God should exist for me. So we begin to develop man-centered ideologies, man-centered methods of biblical interpretation, which lead to man-centered false gospels. That God exists to prop me up and make me happy, and he would never challenge me, he would never call me out, because to do so would be unloving. And he exists just to make me feel good. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, said this. If you meet with the system of theology which magnifies man, flee from it as far as you can. We think God exists to prop us up in a purpose, but God unapologetically says he is so amazing that he's worth losing everything else for. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field. We find it. And for joy over finding that treasure, it's so valuable, it's so worth so much that we go back and we get rid of everything else we have, we sell it so that we can buy that field. He says, that's what my father's kingdom is like. It's, it's of such far surpassing worth that if you lose everything else to gain it, you made a good deal. So what that means is he's worth more than anything else I've ever wanted. He's worth more than desiring my own glory or that my name would be something good for people. He's worth more than every relationship I've ever wanted. He's worth more than any status I could ever get in this world. He's worth more than any money I could ever earn in this world. He's worth more than any power I could ever attain to in this world. He's worth more. He's worth more. Surpassing worth. And it is in seeing the surpassing worth of God, seeing him and saying, you are so much more beautiful and worthy than anyone and anything else. To see the glory of God provokes our hearts to worship. Worship means to ascribe worth to something. The old English is worship. Where the word comes from. We're saying, God, you are of more worth than anything. 
It's what it means to worship, to see the work of God and surrender everything else to be with him. When I see the glory of God, my heart should burn within me as I recognize there is nothing more beautiful or glorious or awe-inspiring in all of existence than he is. Worship is the natural response and overflow of seeing the glory of God and his surpassing worship. Does that make sense? That's huge. It's not something we can conjure up. I can't make myself worship. That's why people who feel like, man, we have these views on stuff. We can't make ourselves. We can't just will ourselves to worship. We have to have a revelation of God. We have to see him for who he is, truly. Like Isaiah saw him, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. And all of a sudden, everything else is put in its proper perspective. I go, oh, oh, all of a sudden now, because I've seen him, everything else is just diminished. Nothing else is even half as worthy. There's no close second. There's no contender for your throne. And that moves us to worship. In a beautiful way, what it does is it knocks us off the throne in our own lives. This is why it's good news. It sounds like really bad news, but it's actually really good news. When Christ is the center of my life, I am no longer the center of my life. And what that does is it sets me free from being the center of my own life and all the pressure that comes with that, living to please myself and affirm myself and make a name for myself and get others to clap for me and approve of me and live in a way that's just constantly trying to make people go, you're awesome. I'm free from that. We're free from that when we see that I, I don't actually exist for myself. I exist to bring glory to God, and it doesn't matter what another human being on this planet thinks of me. So long as I'm living to glorify God, I'm set free from the fear of man. I'm set free from the approval of people. I'm set free from people pleasing. I'm set free from the frustration and pressure when things are not, when the rest of the world doesn't understand that it's all about me. I'm set free from that. He cut me off. Why did he cut me off? Well, why wouldn't he cut me off? I'm just another like person who like exists. Like, I, I, let me handle. You see what I'm saying? If it's about like, all the frustration that disappears when Christ is at the center, it's amazing. Not so that I would live to be the center of my, but that I would live to glorify God. That's worship. It's not. Here's why. Another reason why it's good news. Worship is not begrudging submission and obedience to God. That's not what he's after. I heard somebody say, heaven is not a place for people who are afraid of hell. Heaven is a place for people who are in love with God. Those are two different things. We don't say yes to Jesus just because we're afraid of hell. We say yes to Jesus because we see him and we go, nothing is more beautiful than you. Nothing is more glorious than you. Nobody is greater than you. I'm in. Those are two different things. He doesn't want our... He doesn't want us to say yes to him out of fear of hell or out of just be, okay, I'll be obedient and be grudging like I don't want it. He is inviting us to see him in all of his glory and respond in the only way that our hearts would when we see him that way, with worship, with adoration, to respond when we see his beauty and worth, to respond with total devotion, to say, I'm all in, Lord. I see you. I'm all in. You have my heart. You have my head, you have my hands, you have my gifts and my talents, you have my resources, you have my relationships, my desires, my everything. All that I am and all that I have is yours. It's all yours. That's worship. Worship is a God-centered life. 
Worship is everything in my life centered on Christ. That's worship. The Apostle Paul was a fantastic example of this kind of God's in their life. I'm going to give you this example and then we're going to close. Philippians chapter 1 verse 20 says this. Paul's writing. Now Paul's been through a ton. He's radically saved and now living to glorify God. And he says this. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be glorified in my body, whether by my life or by my death. Do you hear what he just said? He just said, the whole reason I exist is to bring glory to God. I live to glorify God. Philippians 1.1, he says, to live is Christ. That is, my life is all about Jesus. Now watch how surrendered he is. Watch how much he means it. Because people go, we'll kill you. And they try. What does he say? To die is gain. Even better. To live is Christ. To die is gain. You can't threaten a dude like that. What do you do with him? What do you do with him? He goes, my life exists to bring glory to God. Then we'll kill you. To die even better. To die is gain. Okay, this guy's well off his rocker, right? What's going on? Well, we'll throw you in prison. Well, I'll use the extra downtime to write letters to the churches and convert the guards. Right? Well, well, we'll make you suffer. We'll persecute you. He says, Romans 8, 18, the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see how sold out he was? What, what happened to Paul? He used to be persecuting the church. Now he's sold out to the glory of God. He says, God will be glorified in my life, whether by my life or by my death. If I live, I'm going to live in a way that glorifies him. And if I'm killed, I'm going to, I'm going to die in a way that glorifies him. But you, you can kill me, but every drop of blood is going to scream Jesus. Amen. You see how untouchable this man was? Why? Because God had, Acts 9, Acts chapter 9, God had graciously blinded him with the glory of Jesus Christ on the Damascus road and knocked him off the throne of his own life. And because he saw or didn't see, because he was blinded by the glory of Jesus, he got a taste of the glory of Jesus. He then lived from that moment on to, for no other purpose than to bring glory to the one whose glory had blinded him. He had been knocked out of the center of his life, and Christ became the center. And now he was untouchable. You let me live, it's all about Jesus. You kill me, but to die is gain. You throw me in prison, I'm going to write letters, I'm going to convert the guards. You torture me, and the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be confused. Eyes were fixed on the glory to be revealed. The glory of God. Have I seen the glory of God is the question. Have I tasted, even in small measure, experienced enough of the glory of God to knock me out of the center of my life? Am I living sold out to the glory of God? Is my ultimate aim and ambition to bring glory to God in all things, in my life, in every aspect of it, in my marriage? How I, how I am as a husband, does that bring glory to God? How I am as a father, does that bring glory to God? How, how I go to work and my finances, how I handle my, does my bank account glorify God? The way that I, would somebody be able to look at my finances and go, that's a Jesus worshiper. And all of my pursuits in this world, am I centered 
on God. It's not Jesus first and then everything else. It's Jesus at the center permeating everything. Jesus at the center permeating my marriage, permeating my relationship with my children, permeating my job, permeating my finances, permeating my ambition, permeating my work, permeating my school. It's Christ at the center permeating everything. That is worship. Next week we're going to Look at what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. But for tonight, let's pray. <laughs> Father God, I just I ask that you would come and touch our hearts because we recognize um, in your word tonight that we actually can't produce this effect on our own. That the only way we're going to live this kind of God-centered life is if you act upon us. Lord, as if you open our eyes to your glory, if you let us see your beauty and your greatness, your glory and your grace, that we would see you as the prophet saw you high and lifted up. And that that revelation would be so profound to us that it would absolutely knock us out of the center of our own lives and place you squarely on the throne where you belong. And that then from that place, we would be absolutely untouchable and unstoppable because we know that every breath that you give us is given to us for your glory. God, that we would live lives that glorify you, that we would be people of worship, true worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.